brothers and sisters, comrades, welcome back to another episode of Bert's Books. It's been quite a while, so it's nice to have some thoughts to share with you on another great book, and uh, hopefully we can get you turned on to a new book so you can let me know what you think of it. So, um, if you're a longtime listener, you may remember a series I did last year on race and religion in America. I ended that series with a mosaic episode where I presented my own unique argument or thesis about this very complicated problem of race in America. Specifically, I was looking at the civil rights movement and at the different strands of Protestant and evangelical Christianity in America and how various aspects of faith and religious practice kind of interacted with and affected relations between white and black Americans, and uh, ultimately how that history led us to our present moment of, you know, what a lot of people are describing since 2020 as a kind of racial reckoning. Now, you can go back and listen to that series and that specific episode in its entirety if you want to hear the details of the argument I made. But I am going to briefly recap that argument for you here today, because I think the book we are looking at nicely flows out of some of the observations that I made. So in that episode, I drew on the historian Taylor Branch's trilogy of books about the civil rights movement. I talked about the way that black Americans in the South had built a really robust civil society that... Along with the black church, it was a civil society that that was dependent on the black church, which acted like a kind of governing structure for that society in the American South. Now, Taylor Branch's observation is that this black civil society was ironically really kind of the perfect or paradigm example of our founding fathers' dreams. And what I mean by that is that this black civil society based in the black church was very self-sufficient, and the uh, black persons who actively participated in it really took it upon themselves um, the responsibilities and burdens associated with self-government. And there was a certain character type that our founders often thought about, that they thought would be necessary for self-government to work. And what Taylor Branch is noticing is that black civil society had really found a way of producing this kind of character. Now, what I did in that episode was to take that argument from Taylor Branch and compared it with some interesting religious history in the United States. Specifically, I was inspecting what was unfolding in our religious history in the mid-20th century during the years leading up to the Civil Rights Movement. So what you have is, during World War II, there had been a sense of camaraderie among American citizens. But when that war ended and the dust settled, Americans had come to terms or perhaps not come to terms, but come to realize some really horrific realities about human existence in the modern world. They 
were forced to come to terms with what it meant for modern technology to reap a harvest of bodies as it did during the first, um, well, hopefully not the first two world wars, hopefully the last ones. But even beyond that, Americans also had to deal with these very real disappointments about our own culture uh, and its successes and failures, about some of the failures of American civil society. So emerging out of this moment of post-war despair and malaise, you get white leaders who are interested in creating a new kind of democratic civil religion that they think can bring Americans together again with a common sense of purpose. Again, during World War II, there was a sense of purpose that in a way distracted us from some of the failures of our civil society. So I looked at President Dwight Eisenhower and his relationship with the Reverend Billy Graham and how those two men worked together to try to create the civil religion. And what you had under their supervision and guidance was these the introduction of these weird aspects of American religion that are kind of uh, familiar to us today. You know, the, um, the addition of vague religious phrases like under God being added to the Pledge of Allegiance or the phrase in God we trust was added to our money at that time. Now... You could say all sorts of things about the theology or the doctrine of that movement, but that was not at all my concern with regard to how religion relates to race in America. The real uh, core component of my argument was that what Graham and Eisenhower wanted for American society as a whole had already been achieved by black Americans in the South. Graham and Eisenhower, I suggested, missed an opportunity to draw on the influence and civil expertise of the black church and black civil society. What happened instead is that the younger generation of white baby boomers reacted very strongly against what they perceived as a kind of synthetic white evangelical civil religion. And this reaction against civil religion is at the heart of what produced the kind of rebellious, self-centered ethos of the baby boomers and their sexual revolution and protest movements in the 1960s. So if you wanted to know more about the consequences of that and really how it produces some of the problems that we are dealing with in our civil society today, you could listen to my episode on uh, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. But at any rate, um, closing that episode, I returned to Taylor Branch's account of the civil rights movement, and I pointed out that if you look at the history, there is really a struggle between white and black students in movements like the Mississippi Freedom Summer campaign, and it is a tension over visions for America's future. Whether the example of the black church and black civil society on the one hand, or white rebellion against a white synthetic civil religion on the other is going to pave the way for the future in our country. I also suggested that the Black Power movement um, came out from and really drew more heavily on certain 
certain currents, certain insights from the white student countercultural movement, really more than it did from the heritage of black civil society. And my view, along with that of folks like Taylor Branch, I would imagine, is that this was not necessarily a good thing. It was an overcompensation for the failures of white leadership, and it was an overcompensation that uh, backfired and produced uh, more problems. So, all of this to say, the way I approached the issue of race in America was really about the clashing and the melding of different traditions in America. And because that's the way I've studied and understood the issue of race, I was delighted to recently stumble across today's author, who was writing during the 70s and 80s, and he was thinking about things in a similar way. But reading him was also very challenging to me and helped to nuance some of my assumptions in important ways. So today, I want to introduce you to this writer, who I think is really one of the most underappreciated writers on race in America. Today on Burt's Books, this is The Omni-Americans by Albert Murray. And before we get into it, a word from the man himself. My master's thesis, which was uh, a comparative study of the wasteland and the sun also rises, the symbols of sterility and fertility in the wasteland and the sun also rises. So I said, this is a point, this is a, this is a prose version of the... Uh, but what I really, as I continued to study it, what I realized was that Hemingway's approach was much more profound than T.S. Eliot's, as, as, as wide as Eliot's influence was. It was downright superficial once you accepted Hemingway's sun also rises. Because, well, the big image, you know, the quest, and, and you come up on the wasteland, which is ruled over by Fisher King. But the implication there is that there was once a golden age, and through some type of transgression or something, some type of misfortune, they fell upon evil days and barrenness, symbolized by the uh, moon of the of the, of the king, who's sitting fishing. We've got all these various possibilities of poetic symbols, you know, about, about the fertility and whatnot, phallic symbols, this, that, and the other, fertility and continuity. Well, that's good, but it implies that there was a golden age. Right? Hemingway's confrontation was more like the blues. Life is a low down, dirty shame that shouldn't happen to the Futility, futility, all is futile. I appropriated that in my interpretation of the blues. You see, so you come back to this, and it's not, it's not nihilism, you know, state, on the land, and it's not uh, despair, you know, and it's not, uh, what do you call it, uh, hedonism. It's none of this. It's a sober recognition that you have so many bars. After this and and you're born, you have so many bars, and the more you can make them swing, the better than when you're gone, doesn't matter. That was Albert Murray talking about some of his influences, and I think it will become apparent as we move through this episode why hearing him talk about those influences uh, is important. So, uh, good starting question is, who is this guy? And um, as far as I understand, he's, he's not well known unless you're really into kind of niche writing about jazz music or race in America. 
Well, he simply put was a writer, a writer of novels and essays about not just race relations, but about Western literature and music and art. And like many of our great American writers, Murray came out from the, the rich tradition our country has uh, in universities, a university tradition. He attended the famous black university Tuskegee Institute that uh, Booker T. Washington founded, and he also did graduate work at the University of Michigan, Northwestern University in Illinois, and the University of Paris in France. So just from his educational resume, I think you get a sense of the richness from which his intellectual work draws. But that's not all, because Murray was also part of the Air Force during World War II, and he also had rich friendships with famous jazz musicians like Duke Ellington, and had relationships with novelists like Ralph Ellison. Now, Murray was a cultural critic of white supremacy anywhere it showed up, but he loved deeply any piece of art or academic study that revealed the depths of the shared human condition across times, place, and cultures. So if you want to read someone whose love of great art is just contagious, um, whether you're talking about the blues and jazz or great British poets, Pick up Albert Murray and um, don't just read the Omni-Americans that we're talking about today. Read some of his um, art criticism. It's really very good. So that's just kind of the, the Wikipedia entry on this guy. But that gives an idea of the vastness of Murray's learning and experience, which I think is uh, good to know to understand his writing. So today we're interacting with this long-form essay titled The Omni-Americans, which is from an essay collection of the same name. And this essay opens up with Murray talking about the idea of tradition. And at the start, he's not really talking about any specific tradition, but just about the nature of tradition more generally. And I think it's worth saying a few things about his decision by opening up the essay by talking about tradition in that general way. It might not seem that interesting, but I think it's an interesting choice because given what we know about Murray's research and uh, know from his personal biography, this decision actually puts him into a specific tradition. So you have this kind of funny paradox here that he is talking about tradition generally, but by doing that, he's operating within a very specific tradition. And understanding that paradox really makes the richness of this essay and the richness of Murray's writing open up to you. So the question you're wondering is, okay, well, what is the specific tradition we are talking about? Well, as you could tell from that opening clip, Murray was a literary scholar and was very well read in what we call the canon of Western literature. And when we use the word canon, what we're talking about is those famous pieces of literature that are commonly agreed upon by scholars and teachers to be the most important ones that folks um, in the Western world should read. So we're talking about Plato and Dante and Jane Austen and Dostoevsky, any of the books that really define getting a great university education. Now, one of the important writers of that tradition who Murray studied in depth was the modern poet 
T.S. Eliot. And you've probably read Eliot at some point in your schooling. Um, he wrote uh, poems like The Wasteland and The Hollow Men, very famous poems. A lesser-known piece of writing by Eliot was a, a literary criticism essay um, titled Tradition and the Individual Talent. And what T.S. Eliot does in that essay is talk about the relationship between a literary tradition and the individual writer. One of his observations is that tradition is this word or concept that is often tossed around during kind of cynical or negative conversations. Like either if you hear tradition brought up um, by someone who's pro-tradition, it's viewed as, oh, it's something we've lost. Um, if it's by someone who's anti-traditional, it's described as something that we need to be disconnecting ourselves from or liberating ourselves from. Now, what T.S. Eliot says is that neither of those understandings are really sufficient. Instead, he looks at some great poets, and he says that it's clear they are both clearly born out of and shaped by tradition, and that, in turn, when a poet goes to write something, whatever he writes becomes a piece of that tradition that is shaping and reforming all of the pieces of artwork that came before it. So he's arguing here that there's this kind of organic relationship between the tradition and the individual artist. The tradition produces the artist, the artist's work then gets read back onto the tradition and reshapes the tradition. They both are constantly shaping and reshaping each other. Now we're not here to talk about T.S. Eliot today, but I think that's a helpful context for seeing what happens in Murray's essay. Uh, Murray does not mention Eliot directly. <clears throat> Actually, I think he does mention uh, The Wasteland in this essay, but he does not mention uh, Eliot's literary criticism. Um, but he does give it nods, and we know that he would have been familiar with Eliot's writing about tradition. So when we start this essay and see a literary critic like Murray talking about tradition, I think we can safely assume that, Merce, that Murray is consciously placing himself in a line of succession uh, to T.S. Eliot and other literary critics who have thought about and written about tradition. So when I say that him just talking generally about tradition puts him in a tradition, that's what I'm talking about. So I want to read you something from page two. He says this, quote, how far back into the past one goes in order to establish the beginnings of one's own tradition or cultural idiom is not only relative, but even at best is also, upon close inspection, very likely to be downright arbitrary, end quote. So what Murray is talking about there are the kind of natural limits we have uh, when we as, you know, writers or citizens or members of a religion uh, go to think about our relationship to our traditions. We are mortal, finite human beings, so we aren't ever able to pinpoint completely every aspect of the past that is shaping us. So when we do go to look at the past and think about it, we are in a way limiting it and pruning it by ignoring some parts of it and emphasizing others. 
there's both a conscious and an unconscious relationship we have with tradition, Murray says, and that's important, that we don't always know when we are acting or interacting with a tradition. We shape and remold the tradition both in ways that we notice and in ways we don't notice when we choose to think about or emphasize one aspect over the other. And so what Murray is going to go on to talk about in this essay is how the black experience in America can be understood in terms of this idea of tradition. In that quote I read you, though, Murray is trying to set the limitations for how well he can actually do this, right? Because he is operating in a specific time and place that limits him. And the time and place he's doing this is... um, It's an essay collection, so I'm not sure when this individual essay was published, but I believe in the early 1970s, and he's writing, uh, you know, from urban America, Harlem. And so even though he's talking about a long tradition and his place in it, he's going to be assaulting and critiquing certain modern movements from his day and age. So... His essay ends up being really centered on his observations of these different groups who are fighting for political and social power around him. He talks about overt prejudice from Southern white supremacists and from Northern law enforcement, the usual suspects who you would kind of expect to see in a black critique of society. But what makes Murray most interesting is that he's also going to take to task a couple of groups that might surprise you. One is the Black Power Movement, and the second is a group of people who he calls the, quote, social science survey technicians. (laughs) And um, he uses that phrase in a lot of his essays, and what he's doing is being funny and using this kind of highfalutin language to refer to liberal intellectuals and kind of make fun of their high regard for their own intelligence. So social science survey technicians. Now, this is an interesting move for Murray to critique critique all of these groups in one essay, right? Like that is a big task. How is he going to connect these together when we so often view these groups as being opposed to each other? They are, you know, to this day still enemies in the culture wars. So we've got to ask, why is Murray, as a black American, writing about the obstacles other black Americans face, why is he taking aim at all of these groups in the same essay? Well, I think he's trying to think about American identity. Actually, I don't think that. I know that. He's writing about American identity as something shared among all of these various groups and experiences in the nation. And it's no easy task to think about um, American identity in this way, given uh, the way we know our history has often separated all of these different groups from each other. So I'm going to read you a longer passage here that I think gets to the heart of how Murray is thinking about this problem. He writes this, quote, Identity is best defined in terms of culture, and the culture of the nation over which the white Anglo-Saxon power elite exercises such exclusive political, economic, and social control is not all white by any measurement ever devised. 
American culture, even in its most rigidly segregated precincts, is patently and irrevocably composite. It is, regardless of all the hysterical protestations of those who would have it otherwise, incontestably mulatto, end quote. So just to clarify here, he uses an important word. He says mulatto, and um, you may be familiar with this term, but it refers to a person of mixed white and black ancestry, and that's what he's saying um, American culture is. It's mulatto. And he finishes this passage saying this, quote, For all their traditional antagonisms and obvious differences, the so-called black and so-called white people of the United States resemble nobody in the world so much as they resemble each other, end quote. Hello, friends. I don't need to tell you that civil discourse has seemed to reach an impasse in this country. This show is my earnest, if often messy, contribution to overcoming that impasse. If you want to be part of that project, the most important thing you can do is to get a cup of coffee with a friend and talk about the important kinds of ideas discussed in these books. If we aren't putting options on the table, nothing will change. But you can also help by letting me know that you're listening. Subscribe on your favorite podcast service or on YouTube. Leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts is also a great way to help others find my show. I also welcome your generosity. You'll find a link to my Amazon book wish list in the description of today's episode. Send me a book and I'll make sure to give you a shout out when I review it. Last but not least, I welcome your direct participation in the show. Head over to www.bertreadsbooks.com and you'll find my contact information if you've written something you think I should review or you'd like to host an episode of the show on a book I've missed. As always, I couldn't do this show without you. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's show. So as I already said, Murray is thinking about tradition. So what he is trying to unpack here is the way the experience of black people is so tied up in the experience of white people and vice versa that the question of culture and identity in America is fundamentally always tied up in both of these experiences. Neither can be defined without the other. So though certain practices may emerge that in a way superficially divide white from black Americans, it is not to Murray a question of differing identities. As he says in that quote, the tangible signs of difference only really become manifest when you go to exercise power. And we'll talk about that power differential in a bit. But first, I think we need to point out why Murray thinks that American culture is mulatto or a mixture of black and white so fundamentally. Another way we can think about what Murray is doing here is to ask ourselves, okay, what American values or virtues do we, Americans of all colors and creed, take for granted that specifically emerged because of the black experience in America. That's another way to think about this problem. Well, Murray, 
He misses no punches here, and he jumps directly into the most American of American beliefs. And he says that the ideal of freedom, as all Americans understand it, would not fundamentally exist without the culture and experiences of black persons. So, for example, if one wanted to, you could argue that the American ideal of freedom comes, you know, directly to us from the founding fathers or the founding documents. But the problem, says Murray, is that's just flat out not true. Now, that's not to say that Murray is not an admirer of the founding ideals or that he thinks they haven't been a pivotal part of the story of freedom. He's only saying that they are hardly the entire story. Again, the American identity is mulatto, which means there is both that European intellectual heritage, but there's also something else, he says, coming from black Americans. That something else that produced not just the 13th Amendments or the Civil Rights Act is this intuitive sense of freedom as improvisation and progress. So Murray has this wonderful passage where he talks about the abolitionist um, and fugitive uh, slave Frederick Douglass. Murray writes this, he says, quote, In such an epochal figure as that of the mulatto fugitive abolitionist and statesman Frederick Douglass, Contemporary American Negroes can find all the fundamental reassurance as to their identity and mission as Americans. Not even Abraham Lincoln was a more heroic embodiment of the American as a self-made man. After all, Lincoln, like Franklin and Jefferson, was born free. Douglas's basic urge to escape was, of course, only human, as was his willingness to risk the odds. But the tactics he employed, as well as the objectives he was seeking, were American, not African. In his objectives, he certainly does not seem to have been motivated by any overwhelming nostalgia for tribal life. The slaves who absconded were no less inspired by American ideas than those who fought for the colonies, end quote. So notice what Murray is doing here. While he values the Euro-American origins of American institutions in creating a cultural love of freedom, the, the visceral experience of loving and fighting for freedom is most clearly displayed in the ongoing experience of black Americans. The tension at the heart of American life and identity is the claims of freedom furnished by our institutions, on the one hand, and the fight of those who are excluded from those institutions, on the other. And indeed, as Murray says, the tactics as well were uniquely American. Both under slavery and under Jim Crow, there was a need to improvise within the given constraints. And there is this kind of freedom that is only understood by those who, who don't have it. And that's this kind of improvisational freedom to work within your limited set of options and to turn them with your actions into something beautiful. Um, my buddy Derek recently got me into jazz music. 
And this, this understanding of improvisational freedom is pivotally important to why jazz music is the American art form. In traditional jazz music, you have certain uh, constraints that are set by the form of the music, but you're able to improvise within that form. But even as that form is limiting you, see, your improvisations and exercise of freedoms can, can stretch the boundaries of, of that form itself. Um, so it's no surprise that Murray was also a jazz critic, because it's, it's, jazz is such a helpful way of understanding this conception of freedom. Our American institutions, uh, much like jazz and like the tradition that T.S. Eliot talked about, provide the boundaries for great and visionary improvisers. And it is those great improvisers who in turn can leverage the system and remold the way that we understand it, see? Now, given this understanding, you, you can kind of see why Murray is angry as hell at pretty much every political group in the 1970s. His reasons for attacking Southern segregationists and racist Northern cops um, are patently obvious. But what ties these groups to the Black Power movement and liberal intellectuals, at least in Murray's mind, is the degree to which they maintain this illusion that the power of American culture is pulled purely from a kind of white European tradition. And Murray doesn't care who's saying that or making that argument because he thinks it's nonsense and he will attack you if you're making that argument. And he gives this wonderful, famous name to this view of American culture. He scornfully calls it the folklore of white supremacy and the fake lore of black pathology. And so if you see Albert Murray get quoted in articles, you'll usually also see that phrase. Again, he, sa he calls it the folklore of white supremacy and the fake lore of black pathology. Now, this is where things get inter really interesting, because you might respond to Murray and say something like, um, hey, the power structure seems to be primarily occupied by white people. Like, how is that not white supremacy? And what Murray says, he says the whole point of what he calls the folktale of white supremacy has nothing to do with maintaining a culture of white supremacy, but to maintain a power elite that is white. Let me, let me restate that idea in a different way. Murray believes that the cultural identities of Americans are so tied up both in the white and black experience that it is simply nonsense to argue as if there are different American identities. So believing that white supremacy exists, even if that allows you to divide you know, between the prejudiced people and the non-prejudiced people, it's fundamentally counterproductive to the extent that it allows white people, or even black people for that matter, to describe themselves fundamentally in terms of racial difference. And the problem here with describing each other fundamentally in terms of racial difference is that once that difference has been legitimated as a fundamental category, the culture of black Americans, the achievement of black Americans, um, can be broken off, separated, and 
denigrated and painted as inferior than quote-unquote white culture or as uh, Murray calls it, um, pathological, right? The fake lore of black pathology. And so this dual power of the folklore of white supremacy and the fake lore of black pathology allows white Americans fundamentally to take credit for and to monopolize what are fundamentally mulatto cultural achievements in our society. And and this is why, um, you know, he starts targeting the groups that he does. Murray says that one of the groups most responsible for perpetuating this myth is that group of quote-unquote social science survey technicians, um, those liberal academics who he thinks, uh, quote, all too often play in the extension of play into the extension of black degradation through the systemic oversimplification of black tribulations, end quote. So worth noting here is that Murray has something specific in mind, and that's the famous Daniel Moynihan report, which was released in 1965. Um, And that report famously, you know, it looked at, tried to look honestly at the... um, at the issues facing black America in terms of poverty. And it fundamentally laid the responsibility down on the breakdown of the black family. Now, for obvious reasons, right, that um, claim polarized conservatives and liberals. But Murray's point has nothing to do with whether that's correct or incorrect. Um, Well, it does, but his primary point is simply that this oversimplification and reliance on social science data, no matter what it shows, it serves to distract and deflect from the centrality of black achievement and experience in American culture. That white liberals approach black experience as a matter of statistical data demonstrates a lack of concern or awareness for culture or humanity, which is not, um, isn't a, a quantitative art. It's not something that you can quantify with statistics. Now, um, that theme may sound familiar if you've read Ralph Ellison's classic novel, The Invisible Man. I just finished this, and um, I found out that Ellison and Murray were good friends and shared a lot of perspectives. And Murray's critique in light of being friends with Ellison's is is really interesting because in The Invisible Man, Ellison is attacking a lot of the same different political groups, but his his biggest critique is of the socialist parties in the United States. Um, the main character of the novel uh, initially joins a socialist movement thinking that um, they have, you know, his interest in mind. But what he ultimately finds is that um, historical materialism, right? This is the philosophy of uh, Karl Marx, historical dialectic materialism, makes these socialists so determinist that the reality of humanity and purpose, personhood evaporates. And the main character finds himself feeling, as the title of the book suggests, like an invisible man. So, um, again, uh, Murray is no fan of the social science survey technicians. Now, briefly, I also mentioned that Murray attacks the black power movement. 
Um, Ralph Ellison attacks that group as well in his book, The Invisible Man. And the reasons for attacking this group are a bit more obvious now that you understand uh, Murray's concerns. When Murray looks at the Black Power Movement's rejection of American ideals and its emphasis on pan-African nationalism, what he sees is self-abnegation and a capitulation or surrender to the folklore of white supremacy. Now, Murray clearly does not have any problem with a forceful critique of the status quo or critiquing white America by any means, um, just like he doesn't have anything against the good intentions of white liberals. You can see that the groups he chooses to critique all have in common either an explicit or a latent support of this idea that America's values and culture owes nothing to black experience. That is the folklore of or the folklore of white supremacy that he is so against, and that's why he attacks the people he attacks. So that's the Omni Americans, guys, and I just I want to close by bringing this full circle to the arguments about race and religion in America that I mentioned at the beginning of today's episode. Like I said, I think this book uh, reaffirmed some of my thesis, but I think it also nuanced it in really important ways. My argument, I think, really did rely on this assumption that there was this kind of purely white establishment that failed to integrate the robust civil society of black Southerners. So my, my, my view kind of bought into this division that Murray is critiquing here, and it was helpful to hear this critique. I think if you accept Murray's arguments, they just really complicate that story, because if he's right, people like uh, Billy Graham and um, Dwight Eisenhower were already and always indebted to the black experience precisely to the extent that they valued things like uh, freedom and self-governance. Drawing again on T.S. Eliot, you can see how they subconsciously drew on, um, on American tradition, on a mulatto American tradition, but because of what they didn't understand, their efforts also ended up reshaping our culture's understanding of the tradition in a way that probably did uphold this folklore of white supremacy and the folklore of black pathology. So I think Murray does just a masterful job of using the idea of tradition in an American context to draw our attention to the ways in which we are acting within a tradition and remolding it all the time. And sometimes that's for the better, and sometimes that's uh, for the worse. And um, I think I can at least end on a positive note here, because I think it's really fun to think about this, th these ideas from Murray in terms of that improvisational character of the American spirit, that uh, mulatto improvisational spirit. In, uh, in one of my episodes last year, I think, I made a comment about how I thought in our hyper-politicized age, thinking about art and beauty might be a meaningful path forward out of our kind of uh, nihilistic and meaningless age that we find ourselves in. Um, like I said, my friend Derek has gotten me into jazz 
recently, and listening to jazz and thinking about some of Murray's ideas has just been really helpful and hopeful for me because I think it allows us to start thinking about um, our connections to each other as white, black, and brown Americans, and it's it allows us to think about that in a sphere that is independent from our very punitive politics, that is constantly trying to, I think, um, trying to control and constrain our ability to, to, to think about new improvisational ways of dealing with, with our history and with our relationships with each other. So uh, for now, I think finding a, a wordless way to value that improvisation shared by all Americans is a really uh, beautiful thing. So um, yeah, go check out some jazz albums. Go uh, pick up an Albert Murray collection. Check out this essay. I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, but until next time, my name is Brett Bateman Lindsley. Enjoy the rest of your week. <laughs>